Well, I want you guys to imagine a scenario with me for a moment this morning. Think back a ways for, for some of you, but, but think back to when you were 16. And, and let's say that it's your 16th birthday. You, you just turned 16. You just got your driver's license. And, and you go to your party for your 16th birthday party. And, and, and your folks walk up and they tell you, hey, we have a gift for you. We have gotten you a car. Okay, now, how are you going to respond to that gift? Well, I think your response is going to depend a little bit on what the car is. Uh, what, if, what if this is the car? Right there. Uh, maybe a 40-year-old, rusted-out VW Bug. It's about three times older than you are. Uh, every panel on it is dented. Uh, the interior hasn't been washed in like 20 years. It takes 10 minutes and an assortment of tools to get it started. You know what? I, I'm not going to respond really to that gift. In a, in a, I'm not going to work very hard. I'm not going to really take very good care of that car, am I? When my parents give me that, I'm going to think, well, you know, thanks, guys. Um, I'm probably not going to wash that car because it'll just make it more rusted. Um, I'm not going to bother parking it in the garage because my bicycle costs more than that. Um, I'm not going to really care if you eat in my car. I mean, heck, you can grill hamburgers in there. I don't care. Okay, because the gift isn't very valuable, I'm not going to respond with a lot of effort towards that gift. I'm not going to really care for it. But what if instead your parents showed up and they gave you this? Brand new Porsche 911 Turbo. Every single panel on it is, is so perfect that you can see your reflection. Interior is all hand-stitched leather. The engine roars from 0 to 60 in 3.8 seconds. Yeah, I, I'm going to value that gift. I, I'm going to treat that car well. I'm going to wash and wax that car every day. I'm going to kick all the other cars out of the garage and park that right in the middle so nothing can touch it. I'm not going to let you bring a French fry into that car. Nothing's going to get inside that car because I'm going to value it so highly. The value of a gift determines my response. When I perceive a gift to be very valuable, I put effort into taking care of it. I honor that gift. That's really the principle behind the passage that we're studying this morning. The more we value a gift, the more we care about it, the more we care for it. If you give me something that's cheap, I'm not going to put a lot of effort or value into that gift. But if you give me something that's priceless, then I'm going to want to to take care of it and to share it with others and to dote over it. That's the idea this morning. The value of a gift determines our response to it. That's Paul's principle for us. Paul takes that principle and he tells us, okay, how do we respond? Because you know what? We have received a gift as well. We, as followers of Jesus Christ, have actually received a gift far more valuable than a Porsche 911 Turbo. So how should we respond? How will we respond to the incredible gift that we've received? Paul tells us how to respond at the beginning of our passage. Look with me, starting in Philippians chapter 1. We're going to pick it up in Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. We're going to go to the end of the passage this morning. Now, I want to start by just reading the very beginning of verse 27. We're just going to start with the beginning because that's what Paul's big idea. Paul's big idea comes right in the beginning of the verse. He tells us, how do you respond to the gift you've received? Look with me. Verse 27, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, it's interesting, if you look at the book of Philippians, it takes a huge turn right here at the beginning of verse 27. So far through chapter 1, Paul has been talking about himself, his prayers for the Philippians, his circumstances in life and how to interpret them. But now Paul shifts and he turns to the Philippians and the whole rest of the book is directed to them. It's Paul's instruction, his exhortation, here's how you should live. 
And he begins all of that instruction that we'll study for the rest of this semester with a summary idea. One big command. It's right here. Live worthy of the gospel of Christ. Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. That's the big idea. I I think that if you were taking the book of Philippians and you were turning it into a t-shirt, this would be the phrase on the front of it. This is the big idea of Philippians. Let us live worthy of the gospel of Christ. All the rest of it, from 27 on to the end of chapter 4, Paul will be explaining how you actually do that. So this is the big summary idea of the book, so we need to study it in some detail. We need to kind of get into the parts. So let me walk you through what's here. The first word in English is also the first word in Greek only. Now, in Greek, when you put something at the beginning of a sentence that usually doesn't go there, it means that you're emphasizing it. That's what Paul is doing here. He doesn't just mean only by this word. What he means is, hey guys, here is the one most important thing. Okay, forget what else I've said. Here's the one thing you got to pay attention to. And that's what he says next. Paul emphasizes that um, emphasis on this, on, on verse 27 in the next phrase, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you. He, he, he wants us to remember what we said last week. Paul is in prison right now, and he doesn't know if he's going to make it out. Okay, he thinks he will. He thinks that he's going to come and get to visit the Philippians, but he's not sure. Maybe he will stay in prison. Maybe he will die in prison. Guess what? It doesn't matter. Guys, don't worry about that. Just focus on this one thing. Whether you see me or not, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. Now, the next big word that Paul uses, it's a very interesting word. Uh, It's translated in your Bibles, conduct yourselves. Everywhere else that Paul talks about the idea of conduct, how you should live in life, he always uses the verb walk may have noticed that. That's Paul's most common metaphor. This is how you should walk in life. Not in Philippians. Only in Philippians, Paul uses a different word. Polytuamai. And the word means literally to discharge your obligations as citizens. The beginning of it that I've underlined, polis, is actually the word in Greek for city. In the ancient world, your primary allegiance was to your city. Okay, so, so Paul's talking about, hey, what I want you to do is I want you to be a good citizen. That's what this word means. Discharge your responsibilities. Live up to your citizenship. Now, we don't really think of citizenship as a huge deal in our world. You know, we, we think of our citizenship, our responsibilities to this city and to this nation only really when it's time to vote. But it wasn't like that in the ancient world. In the ancient world, your highest responsibility in life was your responsibility to your city, your citizenship. That, that was it. I was studying uh, in some of my encyclopedias this week on, on ancient Greek stuff. And uh, one of the scholars there was really helpful in getting my mind wrapped around that. He said uh, this, one's responsibilities as a citizen were regarded as the most important thing in life to which the free citizen gave his total allegiance. In the ancient world, the most important thing about you was your citizenship. The city you, you were a citizen of, that's where you owed your, your, your allegiance Okay, so, so it's very fitting, actually, that Paul uses this word, because think back to the background. What was the most important possession of any resident of Philippi? Their Roman citizenship. Remember, that's what set Philippi apart. Hardly anyone was a citizen of Rome in the ancient world, but the citizens of Philippi were. They got that privilege way back in the past. All of them who were born in Philippi were citizens of Rome. That was such an incredible privilege that they oriented their whole lives around it. If you were a citizen of Rome, you didn't care about your house. You didn't really care about any of your possessions. All you cared about was your your Roman citizenship. 
That's what life was all about. So Paul's audience, these believers in Philippi, they've been born and bred valuing their Roman citizenship above all else and trying to live worthy of it. That's what life was like. If you lived in Philippi, every day you would walk out of your house wondering, how can I be a good citizen of Rome today? That's what life was about. Now, for Paul, he likes that idea. He wants to capture that idea. He wants them to be good citizens. But remember from the background, he's not talking about Roman citizenship. So I'm at something higher. I want you to be good citizens of heaven. Yeah, that's Paul's big idea in this book. I want you to live as good citizens of heaven. Heaven gives you better privileges, but it also carries greater responsibilities than Rome. Okay, so that's the big idea of this passage. He wants them to discharge their duties, to live up to their citizenship in heaven. How are they going to do that? Well, Paul goes on and he says, Fulfill your responsibilities as citizens of heaven by living worthy. The, the Greek word there, worthy, is axia. It's a very interesting word. You can translate it worthy or suitably. But literally, in the ancient world, it meant to try to balance the scales. Okay, Picture that you've been given something weighty, something incredibly valuable, and, and the scales tip this way, and now you're supposed to do stuff to try to balance the scales. That's the idea here. Live in such a way that you are, are living up to an incredible gift that you've been given. Now, what is the gift that they've been given? It is the gospel. You've been given an incredible gift. It tipped the scales. Now spend the rest of your life trying to balance them out. That's the idea here. This incredible gift is the gospel. Now, I would say that maybe at this point in the semester, we've been studying the book of Philippians for about five weeks now, you might be feeling like you're hearing a broken record at this point. I think every single week my big idea has been the gospel. Now, that's not me. That's Paul. Every single passage we'll study in the book of Philippians will boil down to one word, and that will be the word, the gospel. Okay, now, if anybody ever asks you any question about the book of Philippians, it doesn't matter what the question is, answer the gospel. Nine times out of ten, you'll be right, because that's what Paul's talking about over and over again. Reminds me of the presidential election we just voted on a few months ago. Did you notice, well, you couldn't help but noticing, that all the candidates chose like, like a key word, okay, a key word or a key phrase, and it appeared on every T-shirt Every TV advertisement, uh, every speech centered on that word. It was on the front of every podium whenever they went to speak. So, so for President Obama, what was the word he chose? You saw it everywhere. Yeah, you're all saying change. Change. He chose that word because he wanted that whenever you thought about Barack Obama, you would think change. Okay, now, Paul was no politician, but if he was, the word that would be on every T-shirt Every banner, every TV spot, every speech would be the gospel. That was Paul's big word. Paul wanted to make sure whenever you think of Paul, what do you think about? The gospel. We said a couple weeks ago that, that really when you look at Paul's life, he saw life through gospel-colored glasses. Everything was tinted, was shaped, was interpreted by the gospel. That's the most important thing by Paul. Everything boils down to the gospel. So for Paul, the standard of our lives, the thing that we should be living up to is going to be, of course, the gospel. All of life boils down to living up to the gospel. Now, it's not just Philippians that Paul mentions that. He says in Ephesians 4, 1, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. The calling is the gospel. Walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. Then we heard this passage earlier during the baby dedications, Colossians 1.10, So that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects. You will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, worthy of what he's given you in the gospel. Okay, So for Paul, life boils down to, to conducting yourselves as good citizens of heaven by living worthy of this incredible gift you've received, the gospel. That's what life is, living worthy of the gospel. But we need to pause for a minute and we need to clarify something. 
need to help you guys uh, really think clearly about the difference between the concept of worthy and the concept of merit. Paul's challenging us to live worthy of the gospel. He is not challenging us to merit the gospel. Let me explain the difference. This is very significant. Okay, merit, the concept of meriting the gospel, that, that's the concept of earning something. To, to merit something looks forward. I'm doing good things now so that I can earn salvation in the future. Okay, that's the common view of religion in America. We, we, we hope to merit heaven by doing good things. We, we go to church, we're nice to our neighbors, we give to the poor. We hope to earn salvation through that. That's how people usually view religion in America, and yet it flies in the face of the Bible. The Bible tells us something completely different. Hey, if, if you want to merit salvation, if you want to merit or earn the gospel, what's the price? Price is perfection. If you want to earn your way to heaven, then, then the price is perfection because God is holy and perfect. He cannot welcome sin into his presence, so you have to live a perfect life if you want to merit it. What, what Paul wants us to know this morning is if you're trying to merit the gospel, you will never get it. If you're trying to merit the gospel, in fact, you've already blown it because the Bible tells us we're all born sinners. We're born sinning from the day that we're born. If you're trying to earn your salvation, you've already blown it. That's the good news of the gospel. What we can't merit, God has freely given to us. We couldn't earn our way to him, so he sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. And Jesus now offers to all of us infinite merit, his merit. We can't merit heaven, but Jesus did. And now Jesus freely shares his merit, his righteousness with us if we'll simply believe. The gospel tells us salvation, this righteousness that we desire, this eternal life with God. It's not ours by earning it. It's ours because Christ earned it. And now he offers it to us, to all who will simply believe. Okay, but now having believed, having trusted that Jesus died for us, having received his infinite merit, now we are called to live worthy of it. Okay, you don't merit it. You live worthy of it. Worthy looks backwards. It says, I want to do good now in view of the salvation I already have. Because this salvation is so awesome, I want to treat it well. I want to honor God. I want to honor this gift. It's better than a Porsche 911 Turbo. It's an incredible gift I've gotten, so now I want to live worthy. It reminds me of the, the movie or the book by Victor Hugo, Les Miserables. In that book, you've got a main character, Jean Valjean. If you remember the story, he was a, a man who spent 19 years in prison. And then he was released. But as an ex-convict, no one would offer him room and board until a very kind bishop welcomed him into his home and fed him, gave him a bed for the night. How did Valjean respond to that gift? He went and stole the guy's silverware. What was in, in the ancient world, or back then, a, a very valuable gift. He stole it. The police capture him. They bring him back to the bishop so that the bishop can identify him so Valjean can go to jail for the rest of his life. And what does the bishop do? Well, he surprises everybody by saying, this was a gift. Valjean, I gave you that silverware. And then he rebukes Valjean for not taking the silver candlesticks. The guy well, just lavishes grace upon Valjean. He rescues him from the punishment he deserved. He deserved to go to prison for life, and yet, yet the bishop rescues him and gives him this incredibly pricely gift. The bishop makes a sacrifice. It was his silver that he gave to Valjean. But the beauty of that movie is how this gift of grace transforms Valjean's life. He becomes not a convict, but an upstanding citizen. 
He shows grace to everyone else because he was shown grace. He shows mercy to the needy because he was shown mercy. That's the idea here. We too have been given a gift and now we are called to live worthy of it. To go and and, and give to others also. to, To live worthy of this incredible gift. We've actually received a gift infinitely more valuable than Valjean. Christ didn't give us silver candlesticks. He gave us his life. The creator of the universe, the Lord of heaven and earth, freely chose to bleed and die on our behalf. That is the greatest, most valuable gift ever given in the history of the human race. Jesus gave that gift for us, and now in response, just like Valjean, we are called to live worthy lives. We don't earn the gospel. We don't earn salvation. Jesus already gave it to us, so now let's live worthy of it. I think you can really boil it down, this, this life of living worthy. It's constantly asking the question, how can I honor Christ's priceless gift in my thoughts, words, and actions today? Okay, living worthy, you know, I said earlier that this word worthy is trying to balance the scales. The deal is Christ's gift is infinite, so I'm never going to balance those scales. Okay, I will always be in debt to Christ. There's nothing I can ever do to, to, to be worthy in the sense of balancing with his gift, but my whole life becomes an effort to try. I am constantly trying to live in a fitting way to this infinite gift he's given me. I'm constantly seeking to honor him and honor his gift with my thoughts and my words and my actions. That's what life is all about. Because the gift is priceless, I am called to live worthy of that, to dedicate my whole life, my whole existence to Jesus Christ. So so that's really the big idea that Paul has for us in this passage this morning, and and truthfully, the big idea of the whole rest of the book of, of Philippians. I think if you wanted to boil Philippians down to a mission statement that you put above the door in your home, it would be as a citizen of heaven, today I will live worthy of the gospel of Christ. In every way, my thoughts, my words, my actions, I will seek to live up to this infinite gift given to me by Jesus Christ. That's the big idea that Paul is calling us to do. Now, he's going to take the rest of the book to flesh it out and tell us how. Okay, that, that big idea, it's kind of abstract. How do I actually live worthy of the gospel here in Bryan College Station? What does that look like? The rest of the book tells you how. Okay, but he starts actually in our passage this morning. Uh, we haven't gotten very far in the passage, if you notice. We've just read the first half of the verse. The rest of our passage this morning begins to apply it to life. Paul's going to give us three specific applications. What does it look like in your life to live worthy of the gospel? Three applications. Look with me. We'll start. Let's go back up to verse 27 at the beginning. Let's read the whole passage. So let's reread. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel, and no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here to be in me. So in this passage, he's going to give us three specific applications of living a worthy life. First one comes uh, right there still towards the end of verse 27. He tells us that you are standing firm in one spirit. If you're living a life that is worthy of the gospel, you are standing firm in one spirit. That verb standing firm, it means to be steadfast. No matter what pain or trials or attacks or persecution comes my way, I stand fast. I don't move. I'm like a soldier at his post. Nothing takes me away from standing here. 
Specifically, I'm being steadfast in my devotion to Christ and my devotion to the gospel. That's the idea here. Nothing takes me away from my belief in the gospel and and, and, and my living worthy of the gospel. I'm not moved by any storms that come. Now, now that's a hard call in life. Life is painful. Life is difficult, like Eddie was praying for. We've certainly seen that in our town this week. Life is very painful. How do I stay steadfast in my devotion to Jesus Christ in the midst of the pain of life? Well, I can't do it in my own strength. That's that's what Paul says in this phrase. I can't do it in my own strength. How do I do it? In one spirit. That's a reference to the Holy Spirit. In the one Holy Spirit. The only way you can live a life worthy of the gospel is in the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the only way I can stay fast in my devotion to Jesus Christ. It's in the power of the Spirit. I can't do it in and of myself. Paul makes that point in Galatians 5. He tells us, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. If you want to live a life worthy of the gospel that is full of all this good fruit, the only way you can do it is through dependence. A worthy life is, above all else, a dependent life. A life where I am constantly getting on my knees before God and saying, God, fill me with the power of your Holy Spirit. God, I submit to your Holy Spirit. Work in me through your Spirit to produce this, to make me love and joyful and have peace and patience. Make these things in me through your Spirit. So the first specific application of how I live a worthy life is I live a life of constant dependence on the Holy Spirit as he enables me to be steadfast in my commitment, in my devotion to Jesus Christ. A worthy life is, above all else, a dependent life. Then Paul moves on to a second concrete application. What does a worthy life look like? Well, the next phrase, with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. Now, that verb, striving together, it's, it's really used typically of, of athletic imagery. It, it talks about people working together in some kind of athletic event like a team. Okay, it pictures kind of, I guess in our own day and age, something like a basketball team. The whole team is working together towards a common goal to win the game. Okay, that, that's what Paul's picturing for us. Like a, like a basketball team, you guys are working together towards a common goal, and that goal is what? The faith of the gospel, back to the gospel. The faith which is the gospel. Basically, Paul's saying you're working together to share the gospel. You're working together so that others will come to faith in the gospel. Okay, that's the idea. All of us would unite together around the common mission of sharing the gospel. If we want to live a worthy life, that's what we'll be doing. If we want to live worthy of this incredible gift, we will be striving in unity with one another to share that gift with others who don't yet know Jesus. That's what a worthy life looks like. The second application, it's an evangelistic life. But this, again, is a hard thing. How do we find that kind of unity to to pull us together? Paul says, in one mind. Literally, the word is actually uh, in one soul. It's kind of an uh, unusual word. In one soul means in one accord or in harmony with one another. What Paul's picturing here is that as you work together, you are doing so as if you were one person. One person with one purpose. Nothing divides you. Nothing is getting in the way of your unity. By challenging us to have one mind, what Paul is challenging us to do is to lay aside selfish agendas and personality clashes and selfish desires that would split us. What I think he's doing here is he's challenging us not to be like the 2003-2004 Los Angeles Lakers. 
You guys remember 0304? Yes, yeah, some of you hate the Lakers. That's okay, me too. Um, if you remember the Lakers, you, you might remember 0304. Um, on paper, they were by far the strongest team in the league. They had so many superstars on their roster, including Shaquille O'Neal and Kobe Bryant, two of the arguably best players ever. Okay, they were slated to easily win. How did the season end? In mediocrity. Like half the players left the team and the head coach left too. What happened? I think there were a number of problems, but the biggest problem was that Kobe and Shaq could not get along. They had this incredibly strong team, and yet they allowed their own personal agendas, their own opinions about the way to run the offense, their own selfish desires for more time with the ball to divide their team. And they started losing games to teams that were statistically way weaker than them, all because they could not work together in harmony. That's what Paul is challenging us here. Don't let things divide your harmony. Keep focused around your common mission. An example from growing up for me, I grew up in a small Bible church. And and in my young years, we almost had an issue that divided us, that ruined our harmony, that kept us from sharing the gospel. That issue was schooling. Different people had different opinions on how you should school your kids. Should you send them to public school? Should you send them to private school? Should you homeschool them? Okay, it's okay to have different opinions. It's okay to do your research. It's okay to have convictions for your own family. It's okay to feel strongly about those convictions. What's not okay is when you let a secondary issue like schooling divide your unity and ruin your ability to share the gospel. That's what pretty much happened in my church for a while. Neighbors who believed and and went to church together would not partner to share the gospel with their neighborhoods because they couldn't stand each other because they were so angry over this conflict about how to school your kids. It's okay to have strong convictions about that. It is not okay when you allow a secondary issue like schooling your kids to divide your harmony, to ruin your harmony so that you don't partner with other believers to share the gospel. Paul's challenging us. Don't let anything get in the way of your harmony, of your unity together. Guess what? (laughs) There are believers that their personality really bugs me. Just be honest with you about that. Even as a pastor, there are some believers whose personalities really bug me. We just, we just rub the wrong way. Guess what? It doesn't matter. If they share the same gospel I do, I will gladly partner with that person. They may never become my best friend. That's okay. Bible never tells you you have to be best friends with everyone. What the Bible tells you is no matter what clashes of personality, clashes of, of personal opinion, ambitions might be there, that you lay all those aside and you partner together to share the gospel. Partner together with with other believers, with your neighbors, with your friends, with your family. Partner together to share the gospel. Strive together to get the gospel out there. That's the second way that you live a life worthy of the gospel. Now, we'll talk a lot more about this idea of harmony with one another in our next passage, 2, 1 through 11. It's all about how we unite together. So we'll get more later. For now, just know, Paul's point, don't let anything divide you from your common mission to share the gospel. Strive together, even if you disagree on a lot of other things, work together to share the gospel. That's application number two. Application number three is the one right after that, beginning of verse 28, in no way alarmed by your opponents, or in no way intimidated by your opponents. Now, now who were their opponents for the Philippians? Who were these folks? Well, um, again, it's helpful to go back to the background that we studied for Philippi. Remember again, their most valuable possession as residents of Philippi is their Roman citizenship. In fact, that that possession is so valuable to them that they orient their whole life around it. But who gave them Roman citizenship? Do you remember? The Roman emperor. 
The first emperor, Augustus Caesar, is the one who gave to the residents of Philippi their citizenship. So they had an incredible love for the Roman emperor. Philippi was the one place in the kingdom you did not want to say something bad about the emperor. Because they loved him. Because he gave them their citizenship. Well, how did you show love to the emperor in the ancient world? You worshipped him. The dominant religion of Philippi was emperor worship. It was integrated into all of life. There was no divide between sacred and secular. There was no separation of church and state in the ancient world. Every government ceremony, every business contract, every uh, public event was dominated by emperor worship. It began and ended with worship of the emperor. The Philippians so loved their emperor that they called him our Lord and Savior. It's actually what they called Caesar, our Lord and Savior. Well, that's a problem for Christians. Because we worship a different Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We can't worship an earthly Lord and Savior. That would be idolatry. And so Christians in Philippi could no longer participate in emperor worship, and that became a problem for the rest of the residents of Philippi. Okay, Not only did it look bad, but they were afraid that it would be, be risky. What if Rome finds out about these crazy Christians in our midst who are no longer worshiping the emperor? Will the emperor come in and take away our citizenship? This looks bad. This looks really bad. It, the, the failure of Christians to worship the emperor looked like a threat to the very fabric of society in Philippi. Christians looked like crazy radicals. What are you doing? You're bringing a threat to our whole city. And so Christians were persecuted. When Paul first showed up in Philippi in Acts 16, 10 years before he wrote this book, what happened to him? Well, he was accused by men in Philippi who came and said, this man is teaching things that it is not lawful for citizens of Rome to practice. So the city officials beat him and threw him in prison. Now the same thing was happening to the rest of the church. At at the very most basic level for their commitment to Christ, these believers in Philippi were suffering ridicule. Their neighbors didn't want to have anything to do with them anymore. They were ostracized from life in Philippi. Then they were probably suffering financially as well. If every business deal has begun and ended with worship of the emperor, well, what's going to happen to your business if you, don't, if you choose not to participate? It's going to cost you. Now they were also suffering imprisonment and probably soon death for their faith. Okay, so that's who the opponents are here. They are the, their fellow citizens in Philippi who are bringing incredible persecution against them for their failure to worship the emperor. It's getting very painful to be a believer in Philippi at this point. Not just ridicule, not just financial loss, but imprisonment and death. And how are they going to face that courageously? This is what Paul tells them. Don't even be intimidated by it. How are they going to do that? That's incredibly hard. I don't think we can even imagine that. And how would I stand fast? How would I be courageous in the, in the loss of, of my reputation of my finances, of my family, of my freedom, of my life? How would I face that courageously? Well, the answer is with truth. You face persecution with truth. You face a trial with truth. So Paul takes the rest of the passage and he lays out for them truths about persecution, truths that they were to bathe their minds in. Let's look at those. They start uh, right after, well, let's start again in verse 28. In no way alarmed by your opponents, and here comes the truth, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. Paul tells them some truth in this passage, some hard truths, but important truths. Number one, he tells them that persecution is the norm. Hey guys, I experienced it back when I came first. I'm experiencing it now because I'm in prison. Now you're going to experience persecution is the norm in the Christian life. 
If you are a follower of Jesus, living in a hostile world like we do, the normal Christian life will be one of persecution. Jesus says that, John 15, 20, Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. They will. You can count on it. The normal Christian life is one of persecution because we follow a Lord who is persecuted. We follow a Lord who the world hates. Okay, so the normal experience of life for Christians is that we will face persecution. But not only is that the norm, but Paul goes on to say it is also a gracious gift. Persecution is not only a norm, it's a gift. In, in, in the NAS, it says that God has granted it to you to suffer. Um, literally, it means he has graciously given it to you. Notice what he compares it to. That, that persecution is a gracious gift that is parallel with the gift of faith. That's like your eternal life. Going to heaven is a gift on par with the gift of persecution. That's crazy to think about. Persecution is a greater gift from God than a long life or a big family or a great job or a nice house. None of those can compare with the gift of persecution. That's a pretty radical statement. Persecution is a divine gift on par with your eternal life. You might be thinking, hey, prove it to me. That sounds crazy. How in the world can persecution be a gift? Let me give you a few reasons. How can persecution be a gift? Number one, because persecution provides proof of your future, of your destiny. Look again in verse 28. Paul says, In no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you. In other words, if the first part of verse 28 is true, if you if you followers of Christ... Uh, face persecution without fear, if you face it courageously, then as a result, it will be to you a sign, an omen, literally, from God. Be an omen in two parts. Part number one, it will tell you that God will judge your enemies. If they persecute you and yet you stand fast, you stand steadfast in the midst of persecution, it's telling you that God will certainly bring justice in the future. If your persecutors do not have a change of heart, they will pay for their sins for eternity. God will judge them. They will not get away for what they're doing. In the second part of this divine omen, it's also a sign to you that you will certainly be saved. Now, it's not that you earn your salvation by being bold in the face of persecution. What you earn or what you get is assurance of salvation. What Paul's telling us is, hey, when, when Christians stand in the, in the face of persecution with, with courage, free of fear, guess what? That is a proof that this whole Christianity thing isn't made up. Now, I think one of the greatest proofs of our religion is the fact that all the founders of our religion paid for their beliefs with their lives. Jesus, Peter, Paul, 11 of the 12 original apostles, all of them willingly, gladly died for their beliefs. Okay, now you'd think if they were making up this whole Christianity thing, they'd probably recant as the axe is about to fall, wouldn't you? No, all of them willingly died. You don't die for something you make up. What that's telling all the rest of the church is when Christians boldly go to their death for their faith, it's proof that we're right. It's proof that there's something to this whole Jesus thing. People don't die for something they make up. So when we face persecution with boldness, it's a gift from God because it's proof that our beliefs are true. That God will bring justice and he will bring salvation. We'll spend eternity with him. The gospel's true because believers were willing to gladly, humbly shed their blood for their beliefs. 
Second reason is that persecution is a gift is because it results in eternal reward. Jesus tells us in Luke 6, Blessed are you when men hate you, ostracize you, and insult you, and scorn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man. Be glad in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. This is an incredible verse. Blessed are you when men persecute you. Be glad, leap for joy. Man, that's so, what in the world? I do everything I can to avoid pain, and you're telling me I should leap for joy when I'm persecuted? Yes, because your reward in heaven will outweigh any pain on earth. Whatever you suffer now will be nothing compared to the reward you will receive from Jesus Christ when you see him face to face. The reward will outweigh any pain. So leap for joy. Count it a joy, a blessing when people persecute you. That's so opposite from how we think, but that is truth. Persecution is a gift, reason number two, because it results in incredible eternal reward. And number three, it's a gift because it makes us more like Jesus. Look in your Bibles, turn to chapter 3, a passage that we're going to get to in a a couple months. Chapter 3, verses 8 through 10. Read with me starting in verse 8. Paul says, more than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. Paul's telling us here his goal in life. Paul's big goal, Paul's above all else goal is to know Jesus, to be fully like Jesus, to be molded into the likeness of Jesus. And guess what that requires? Suffering and death. If you want to be fully like Jesus, you got to suffer persecution like Jesus did and you have to die like Jesus did. That's why Paul and many of the martyrs in the early church actually counted it joy when they lost their lives. Have records of a guy named Arrhenius, very, very early in the history of the church, a follower of the original disciples, a leader of, of, of a church. He's arrested, he's taken to Rome, and he writes a letter to his followers, and he says, hey guys, don't pray for my release. I don't want to be released. I want to be burned at the stake. Why? Because then I'll be like Jesus. This is God's gift to me. I get to be like Jesus in a way that a lot of people don't. I get to die like him at the hands of my persecutors. That's it. That's mind-blowing to think about that. These guys rejoiced in persecution because it allowed them to be like this Lord whom they loved in a special way. That's something we miss. We who are not persecuted, we don't have that gift. We don't get to be like Jesus in that way because we're not persecuted. We're not dying for our faith. Our brothers and sisters in China do. That's a gift. That's an advantage they have over us. They get to suffer and die like Jesus did. That's incredible. Persecution is a gift from God because it proves our better future, it results in eternal reward, and it makes us more like Jesus. But now I think we need to pause and we need to ask, how in the world does this apply to us? What do we do with verses 28 through 30? We're not facing persecution today. We live in a country that does not overtly persecute us. So what do we do? How do we apply this passage? Well, uh, first thing that I think we should do with verse 29 is we should use it as a reminder to not fear persecution. Is persecution going to come in our country? Almost certainly so. Because it is an anomaly that persecution isn't here yet. So don't fear it. Is it going to come upon your kids? Probably so. Don't fear it. Persecution's okay. It's a gift from God. Don't fear it. Second, don't be surprised by it. It's going to come. Don't be shocked when you read about stuff in the news. 
Yeah, it's coming because it's the norm. And number three, if we're free from persecution, let us make sure we're free for the right reasons. We don't suffer persecution by and large in this country today, but is it for the right reasons? Are we free of persecution in our lives because of the choice of God? He's simply chosen not to bring persecution in our lives, or are we free by our choice? Because we've chosen to be quiet about our faith, to avoid offending anyone. Have, have we responded in fear and timidity and compromise to our culture? i got to tell you guys, this has been the most challenging part of the passage for me this week. I have sat there and meditated and wrestled over the question, God, why am I not persecuted? If persecution is both the normal experience of the Christian life and one of God's greatest gifts to us, why am I not persecuted? Now, God is not telling us to go seek out persecution. It's something he grants. Don't go seek it out. That's not the right application here. But I think it is right to ask the question, why are we not experiencing it? Is it because of God's choice? If so, that's okay. And I think for a lot of us, that's the case. God has chosen, you're not going to be persecuted right now. If that's the case, then that's good. But if, on the other hand, you are free of persecution because you remain silent, because you choose not to share your faith, because you don't want to offend anybody, because you compromise with culture, if those are the reasons, then it's not okay. I want to challenge you sometime this week, go before God prayerfully and ask him, God, please show me, why am I not being persecuted? Is it because of your choice? Is it simply your decision at this time in my life, or is it because of my fear and compromise? If it's the latter, if it's because you're not sharing your faith, because you're too afraid to do it, or you just don't want to do it, then pray that God would change you. Pray that God would work in you to give you courage, to convict you, to give you boldness, so that you would be willing to step out there and, and offend someone. Guess what? The gospel, God tells us, is offensive. The gospel will offend those who don't believe. Now, that doesn't mean you should be offensive. <laughs> don't go out there and offend people with your personality or how you share. You want to share in love, share in grace. But when you share the message of the gospel, remember, God created the gospel to be offensive to those who don't believe. So are you willing this week to step up and offend someone? Are you willing to step out there and risk persecution for your faith? If you're willing and you're out there sharing and you're not persecuted, then that's simply God's gift to you. But if it's because you're quiet, if it's because you're silent, if it's because you're afraid or you're making compromises, that's not okay. We need to be out there sharing our faith. Okay, so in our passage this morning, I just want to wrap this up. The big idea, Paul is shifting from talking about his own prayers and his own circumstances. He's shifting to, to encourage, to exhort, to instruct the Philippians. And his instruction starts with one big command, one big idea in life. As citizens of heaven, live worthy of the gospel. You've been given the greatest gift in the history of the human race, so live worthy of it. You're not meriting it, you're not earning it, live worthy of it, respond to it in a fitting way. Do so in three ways. Number one, by standing firm in the Holy Spirit. Remember, a worthy life is above all else a dependent life. Daily ask God to strengthen you through his Holy Spirit so that you can stand fast in your devotion to Jesus Christ in the midst of a hostile world. Number two, live worthy of heaven by striving together with other believers in harmony to share the gospel. Lay aside your personal agendas. Lay aside those secondary issues and unite with other believers to share the gospel because that's why we're here. That is our one common mission. If you're not sharing the gospel, you're just taking up space. So unify in harmony to share the gospel. And then application number three, prepare for persecution. Because it's the norm and it's a gift from God. Prepare for persecution by asking yourself a couple questions this week. Number one, am I free of persecution for the right reason? 
Am I free because of God's choice rather than my own choice? And then number two, it's not up here. But am I willing to suffer persecution? When God changes his mind and he allows persecution in the United States, which will come, am I willing? Will I willingly choose to be persecuted for my faith? Ask yourselves, meditate on those questions this week. That's how you will become a person who lives worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray for God's help with that. Lord God, we we bow before you now. and, And number one, Lord, we can't walk away from this passage without thanking you for the gospel. It is the greatest gift in the human race that you sent your son to die for us. Lord, we had no hope apart from you. We would spend eternity in punishment for our sins if it was not for your son. Thank you so much for sending Jesus Christ to die for us and rise from the dead. I pray for anyone here who hasn't accepted that gift yet. Please, Lord, open their mind. Help them to see the truth of the gospel and to believe. And now, Lord, for the rest of us, help us to spend the rest of our lives striving to live worthy of that gift, striving to live in a fitting way. Lord, I pray that we would honor that gift. I pray that when people see us, they would see the gospel, that we would be all about the gospel. I pray, Lord, specifically as Paul was talking about, that we would turn to you to be strengthened by your Holy Spirit, that we would live dependent lives every day this week. I pray that, uh, Lord, that we would work together in harmony. Please, Lord, grow our congregation here in harmony. Please protect us from the attacks of Satan that that desires to, to divide us, Lord, over secondary issues. Please protect our harmony. Help us to work together to share the gospel. And finally, Lord, please prepare us for persecution. Help us, Lord, to not escape persecution through fear or through silence. Help us, Lord, to instead be bold, to be sharing our faith, even if it risks offending someone. Help us to get out there and share our faith willingly, knowing that it might be in persecution, but knowing that that persecution would be a gift from you. Lord, you are so good. Change our attitudes. Help us to see truth. Help us to believe truth. Help us to practice it. Thank you for your son, in whose name we pray. Amen. I have a couple more things for you guys this morning real quick. Next week, we're going to do something a little different. Our next passage is 2, 1 through 11. It's one of the most significant passages in the whole book. And it has a lot to teach us that's really challenging about Jesus Christ, about who he is. So I've asked Buck Anderson, our pastor of leadership development, to come next week and teach us about Jesus Christ. I don't mean just some of the basic teachings. He's going to take us deep. Who is Jesus? How is he related to God? What is he doing? What has he done? So next week, Buck's going to take us through the study of Jesus Christ to prepare us for the following week when I take us through 2, 1 through 11, which will be an incredibly rewarding passage.